the edge of the familiar, where your comfort zone ends and the unknown stretches before you. That's where greatness awaits. Are you ready to take that leap? This is the Risk Big Podcast with your host, Travis Fitzwater. Thanks for listening to the Risk Big Podcast, Stories of Starts with Travis Fitzwater. Find episodes online with show notes at www.riskbigpodcast.com slash episodes. Also, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter by following at riskbigpodcast. Well, I'm excited to have my podcast today, Steve Grubbs, who's the uh, founder of Victory Enterprises years ago. Really, really neat story. I look forward to starting to ask some questions here of Steve. Uh, he's got this really uh, neat, and he's also got employees that are thrilled with the fact that I'm interviewing today, and they've given me some some insights and some questions I should ask. So I'm really looking forward to getting uh, into this interview. But before we start, Steve, uh, thanks for being with me. Sure, glad to be here. Well, it's uh, it's a real honor. Uh, you know, I've worked with your organization on a number of levels for, for on different uh, areas, and you guys are really impressive. Victory Enterprises is well known around the country, not just for the political side of things of what you do, but you're you're getting into all these different areas and. Uh, I really look forward to getting to talk to you about it. Um, the first thing I, you. I, I'd like to uh, talk about really quick, and uh, one of your one of your employees that said that you got to ask about Steve Forbes. So I'd love to hear your experience with Steve Forbes and and uh, what that looked like. You know, Steve Forbes is one of those amazing people that you meet in your life, and uh, I had the good fortune to get to know him when. Uh, he wanted me to be actively involved in running his uh, 2000 presidential campaign. One of the great stories I like to tell is, uh, you know, as he was courting me, and at that point I had the option of working for uh, a number of leading candidates. Uh, and so he invited me to Boston, and he said, hey, we're going to go on a little yacht ride on, on the, uh, the Highlander. And I said, great. He said, well, have some special guests there. And I said, oh, awesome. So I had my wife and myself, and we hop on this amazing yacht. And after just a few minutes, the, the a helicopter comes out of the sky and lands on top of the yacht. Now, first of all, how, how often are you on a yacht that has a landing pad for a helicopter and a matching helicopter? And, and, and the next thing I know, Nancy Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's husband, and the Forbeses, get out of the helicopter and, and they join the other five or six of us down in the main area. And so there are like 10, 12 people on this yacht and my wife and I from Iowa. So it was, it was a wonderful evening. It was an amazing evening. And, uh, it was, and, and, you know, here's the deal. He's a big deal. You know, I'm, I'm a guy from the Midwest, but we became friends. And if, if I call him when I'm in New York and, and say, Hey, can I drop by and say hi? You know, if he's in the office, it's always a yes. So, w- what a wonderful person, and 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 I like his flat tax too. Yeah, that's that's terrific. And maybe maybe one day you'll take me to New York with you, and I can get him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be excellent. Well, so that's that's a really obviously he has had a huge impact on America and the economy, and you know has all these uh, these business interests across the country that are very very impactful. Uh, in in the in the spheres of entrepreneurship and business, it's really uh, you know obviously you you see stuff from 
that's got his fingerprint on it pretty well on a daily basis that's really impactful in our economy. Mm-hmm. It is. So that's that's a really neat part of your story. So you're so you have that, but you got into politics because you were a state representative, like I am currently in Iowa. And it, t- talk me through a little bit of your political career, and then how you moved from that into starting your own business, basically at home in your basement uh, over a weekend. Yeah, yeah. You know the 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 bottom line is my father is a school teacher at a uh, middle school in Davenport, and you know. He was a government teacher, social studies. So I grew up understanding the importance of government. So at a young age, I was very interested. I went to my first Republican caucus in 1980. And then at age 24, I began running for the state house. I was a Republican running in a heavy Democrat district. And, uh, but, you know, I knocked on 10,000 doors. I met a lot of people. I listened. And uh, on election night, I, uh, there were 11 precincts and the first 10 came in and I was down by 50 votes. And then, but I knew that the last precinct to come in was the very last one that I had knocked. And I felt like it was really the most important swing precinct. And, and that precinct rolled in and I won it by 125 votes. So I eked out a victory on election night. And after a close recount, I held my victory and uh, entered the state house at, at age 25. Wow. And, <clears throat> excuse me, to this day, you have you have a lot of these victories eked out through your political work, and you see this often, a story very similar to yours across the country with the, the many campaigns you guys work on. Yeah, and, you know, the reason I got involved is because you know, I, I really have always had a passion uh, for solving problems. And, you know, the, the place that I've changed probably the most over over the years is not necessarily my view of government that that's remained relatively consistent in this last uh, presidential campaign i worked with Rand paul you know I, i've sure. certainly become a little bit more libertarian over the years uh, but w- what i have come to the conclusion uh, is that you know really the greatest problems we have uh, you, one could can have more impact in starting the right business to solve those problems. And, you know, there are a lot of people who love Elon Musk, a lot of people who hate Elon Musk, a lot of people say, you know, he's just, you know, living at the, the teat of, of government. But, sure. you know, he, he identified a couple of problems. You know, one was uh, having a, an active space program, and the other is, you know, trying to figure out uh, renew, renewable fuels, fossil fuels, that whole issue. And, and that may not be the, the issue that, that your listeners uh, feel passionate about, but here's a guy who identified two problems. He didn't run for office to solve the problems. He said, okay, I'm going to start a, a private sector venture and, and try, to, try to address those issues. Um, and in, in a large way, he has made more progress on those issues than, than government ever will. Sure. And, and I get it that, that he does get government funding for some of that, but, but he took a different tact, and, and I appreciate that. And, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons that, you know, I got into business for two reasons. One, you know, I, I have four kids. Got You got to pay the bills, and college tuition is not <laughs> inexpensive. But also, I, I love to solve problems, and so that's, that's how I have transitioned from uh, a world of politics to a world of business. Yeah. And so tell me about that story. So you left politics and 
what I was told is you read a websites for dummies book over a weekend and kind of launched your business. And I, you know, tell me a little bit yeah. about that and how you started. Well, initially the company, uh, I started a company where I, I helped people that I knew get elected to office. You know, we'd write some radio ads, some TV ads, some polls, that kind of thing. And that, that company still continues today as, as I'm sure you know. But one thing I learned pretty quickly is that it's a very seasonal business. So, you know, my wife, uh, she was pregnant with our third child. Uh, she might've had our third child at that point. And uh, she was an attorney, but she was decelerating her hours. And she w thought that when I was in the legislature, that $20,000 a year salary just wasn't really cutting it. <laughs> so I started this company, did a little bit of uh, political work. I got paid pretty well for it. But then suddenly election day came and we had a good year. I was all excited, but suddenly my clients had all dried up. I, I didn't really have any revenue coming in. Yeah. And so I thought, huh, well, maybe that's not the best business model in the world. So it was uh, 1997. I went to Best Buy. I bought a book, Websites for Dummies. And we headed to my in-laws in just north of Waterloo, Iowa. I read the book over a weekend. And on Monday, I let everybody I knew know that I was now a website developer. <laughs> and the most common response I got was, what's a website? I said, you know what? Doesn't really matter going to be a big deal. Everybody's going to have one. Just give me this much money and I'll get you a website in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so that's great. people did. That kind they of gave me money. I built websites. Sure. That's, that's a terrific story. And it kind of makes me feel how it reminds me of right now, as I'm explaining that I'm re releasing this podcast, people are kind of like, well, what are you talking about and what are you doing and what is it and why is it important? And, um, you know, very similar, similar questions. I feel like podcasting and the, the new media environments really kind of, obviously it changes and the dynamics change significantly over short periods of time, but it's, it's kind of neat to be a part of it in that way. And, and I know, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, when I was, I was starting college, the internet was really starting to become a, a significant thing, obviously. And so you really kind of, you, you kind of hit it at the perfect moment. feels like. Well, and, and, that's what we try to do is we, we look at, you know, I, I don't like to be midway through uh, a new technology because then it's very competitive. I like to get on early, be one of the first people to figure it out. And then, you know, you don't have to compete with a lot of other people, but you do have that initial challenge of, oh, well, why, why should I buy that? And, and we always run into that. You know, we built mobile apps in 2009, sure. just as soon as Apple opened up the phone and, and you know we're in a new high tech venture today. Sure, and I, I hope I hope in this conversation we get to virtual reality because I I'm thrilled with all of that all of that new technology stuff. It just really excites me the opportunities. But before we get there, can you tell me a little bit about what was really hard at the get go for you in starting a business? Because ideally, who's listening to this is somebody who's maybe a little bit concerned about starting a business. It's a little bit of a risk. It's a big risk. They're taking a, a, a ginormous leap, or maybe it's a risk that's maybe not starting a business necessarily, but it's still a big risk. Uh, can you tell a little bit, of, maybe even a story anecdotally, what it looked like for you and some hard times that you experienced when you started? Well, I'll cover just some, some various points because I started in my basement and I kept my costs very low. And, you know, I, I've got a number of theories about how to successfully start a business. And, and one of those is, is not to, to put all uh, 
your eggs in one basket. You know, if you can make small bets on a concept, see if it works, and if it does, then you exploit it until it's it's much bigger. And and so uh, after the, I knew I could do the political thing well, but I didn't know about the website deal. So um, I you know I, I went and I found somebody who who had plenty of money and, and they, they would trust me. They didn't know anything about websites, but they trusted me to build a website. So I built them a website. So that was step one. It, you know, it's find somebody who will who will you know give you a chance. And step two is once you have a, a beta or a demo, then you can take it to someone bigger. Bigger. So I knew that municipal governments were starting to look into this concept. So I went to a couple of municipal governments and and my own government. At, initially, they said no, we're not going to do that. And so I went to a smaller government and I showed them what I had done for this person who let me put it together. They didn't know anyone else who built websites, so they gave me a small amount of money to build them a website. Done. So now my home community the next year, they put out an RFP and, and I kept my costs low enough so that, you know, I could basically bring in five thousand dollars a month and survive. Sure. Thing was, I really wasn't a very good website developer. You know, I don't I didn't know how to code, I wasn't a graphic designer. You know, so I had to do a lot of things to do shortcuts. But I started hiring people at that point, and they, my first employee worked in my basement. I didn't spend any money on rent or, or other overhead. Uh, my, my second employee and my third employee worked in a little outbuilding I had on my property. <laughs> it wasn't until I had five employees that I actually rented a space. And this was one of my first mistakes. Um, I under I I did not anticipate properly how quickly we could grow and so I rented a space 3,500 square feet and I signed a four-year lease and after 18 months we had outgrown the space Man. and I was stuck paying that lease for another two and a half years yeah so yeah and a, this is so sorry go ahead go ahead well this is I, I was just gonna say this you, you can never really predict growth. And so to the extent that you can sign contracts that allow you to remain nimble, that's always a smart thing to do. Yeah. And did you, so I had an interview with the, with one of my mentors here in town that was really, really good. And he mentioned that when you start a business, you, you really typically the successful ones don't really kind of stay on the stay in the same area that they expected to be in as far as what they exactly what they were doing, you know, like your vision of it doesn't play out the exact way that you think. So did you have to pivot early on? Did you have to move to something that maybe you weren't expecting as far as building products and doing some things that was really beneficial for you guys that, that really kind of helped you move in a, in a, maybe in a different direction you weren't expecting. Yeah, we, we continually test, pivot and deploy test, pivot, deploy. So, so we'll test out a concept. So in 1999, uh, I, I was somewhat successful working with candidates, but they all kept saying, yeah, but I know you want to do TV and radio for me, but where do I get yard signs? And so finally in 1999, I said, well, there's this new thing called the Internet, and I'm going to put a little store out there and you know, maybe go down to your local library and take a look at my selections, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get you some yard signs. So, so we did that. That ended up scaling from nothing in 1999 to about 10 million seven years later. Uh, so that that wow. grew quickly, but it didn't 
it didn't scale completely with yard signs because again, yard signs were seasonal. So sure. there I was, elections over again. I've got these printers, I've got employees, and one of my employees comes down with cancer. And so I think, oh boy, what can we do for her? Right. So we print a large card out of corrugated <laughs> plastic. We all sign it, we deliver it to the hospital, and oh, the staff at the hospital just thought that was the coolest thing they'd ever seen. Construct me. Why can't we try, you know, shift, pivot, and, and begin producing the world's largest greeting cards? Sure. And so today, BigFunnyCards.com, we are the world's largest <laughs> greeting cards, and, and that helped take up some of that extra capacity we had during the down months. Um, from there, we moved to Amazon, and we sell corrugated lawn decorations on Amazon. Really? So every literally every week every single week of every single year we test new products and we, we check to see if they work you know right now we're testing destination wedding can coolers <laughs> and we have them on amazon and and we sold our first one today and so I'm, I'm hopeful that that product will go if not we'll try something else so yes we were constantly pivoting and um and if you if you're not able to think outside the box and think toward the pivot, then uh, you probably don't succeed for long. Yeah. And so what's what's maybe one thing, one product that you guys pivoted to, or you you thought, well, this is going to go crazy, and then it just flopped. Ah, oh, so many, so <laughs> so many. Um, you know, in the first company I went out and raised capital for was Victory Radio. So I, I launched Vic, I launched Victory Radio in 1999, and and when I did, I thought it would be a big deal. Unfortunately, it completely failed. I raised six hundred thousand dollars to start this company. Wow! At the exact same time, I was starting Victory Store, our online yard sign shop, and I didn't raise any money for that, and that scaled to six hundred thousand in no time. But I, you know, after after about a year and a half of trying to get this internet radio station off the ground, I returned money to investors and said, you know, I apologize, but I have failed. And um, I didn't pivot from there. Uh, I just I just knew that I couldn't make it happen. At the same time, I had the, the Victory Enterprises moving forward and Victory Store moving forward, and those were both being successful. Yeah, and so you had this you had this situation where you you realized that you maybe it's okay to cut your losses in this one area and and you still have some other things going on in a, in a different area. And actually Victory Store is kind of fascinating. Before I knew anybody at Victory, I bought my political yard signs at Victory Store cuz you guys were the best price. Um That's great. compared to Thank everybody you for locally. That. Yeah. You're welcome. And that was I don't know, 2000 I guess it was in 2004 early 2014. Before, you know, I, I knew your, your staff in, in Missouri, and um, it was really, really helpful. You know, we saved a lot of money on our signs, and it made it made it easier for us to put that money, deploy well, it elsewhere. And, and that's part of the, you know, if you can get started, keep your margins tight when you're smaller, the larger you get, you know, now we buy corrugated plastic by the truckload. You know, semi sure. come in once or twice a week, and so there aren't many people who, who get the price that we get. Um, but you know that the concept 
of what would I say, what I call and others call, uh, fail fast. Understand that the idea that you have is not reflective of you as an entrepreneur. You, you know, only one out of every five tries, are you really going to get it completely right. And for me, I'll try five things. One of them is a home run. Two of them are singles or doubles. And uh, two of them are just complete failures. And so, you know, if you, you don't want to just keep nursing along the failures. Yeah. You strike out, you know, get back up to bat again, but, but don't just keep standing there swinging when you, when you already have three strikes. Sure. And as you, as you continue to grow and, and change in directions here a little bit, but as you grew, you did this really kind of, there's a neat story behind how you move spaces and you actually bought yeah. the elementary school you went to. Can you tell me that story? Yeah. So, uh, we started in my basement and outgrew that in about a year. Then we moved out behind my house to the out building, and I could fit five people in there. Then we rented the 3,500-square-foot space for four years right across from the cemetery in the day-old bread store, um, and then we outgrew that in 18 months. So then I had to find a new space, and I took my uh, son down to practice flag football at my former elementary school. When I arrived, there was a, a small little printed sign that said, this, uh, this school is now closed. Uh, we are taking sealed bids through October 20th, which happened to be my birthday. And, um, and so if you have an interest in this building, please deliver a sealed bid to the school district. So I thought about it and, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, but I bid $101,000. Took my and bid how, in how big the school was this district. Building, by the way? The building is 26,000 square feet, 50 years old, six acres at the corner of, at the intersection of a interstate 280 and us highway 22. Is it, is, so we're right the near the airport. Alone not worth that. I mean, if you just flipped around and sold the acreage, would it not be one, worth one would that? think <laughs> it, 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 it sure should be right at the yeah, intersection no of kidding. an interstate and a state highway. So, you know, part of the mistake I think is the school district did not advertise the auction I and mean, there's a sealed auction. So, um, so, you know, I dropped off my bid week later they call me and they say uh well there are three bids near the high bidder and i said great they said but it's not enough money One hundred one thousand for a property like this that's that's crazy and i said okay they said so we want you to come back with a higher bid and so i said well okay so i came back a few days later with 106,000, five percent increase and they said awesome it's all yours so that's wow. how i that's how I bought uh, my elementary school, and we raised the basketball hoops from 9 foot to 10 foot. We put in a sport court, since it was a cement floor with just tile over it, and I have now played about 17,000 games of basketball in there since 2002. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, you, now you have your kids in there playing. I, I know I've seen something about your work, your work day and what it looks like, and uh, I can't only yeah. imagine the family moments you've had in that school where you went to school, which is just unbelievable. I mean, it's just an unbelievable story. I love it. Yeah, I took the uh, teacher's lounge because that was the one room I was <laughs> never allowed in the entire time I was there. Plus, it had a private bathroom. And, and uh, so that, that was a great room. But, yeah, my, you know, my kids are, are a little older now, college age. But uh, as they were growing up since 2002, we we had a way that my wife and I could both work down there. They could have the gym. They could, we set aside one entire room for them. 
Um, so that, that was, and then as they got a little bit older, uh, they became the janitors for the building. And so, uh, okay. Inc. Magazine came in to do a story on what a great businessman I was. And I couldn't wait to see the story. And, and then <laughs> I opened it up to, to read all about me. And, and it turned out to be a story about how I make my children, uh, work in the building and, and learn this work ethic through being janitors. And I said, huh, okay. Nice. Real nice. I love Inc. Magazine, by the way. It's an excellent magazine. Yeah, it's a great resource. Yeah. So you have you have this burgeoning business. You've done some really really neat stuff. What? Tell me. Tell me at the heart of it. What's the? Is there a lot of passion that drives what you do? I mean, you excited about what you do, and did you, were you excited about starting something? And what was your what was your why? You know, there's all these discussions about having a why instead of just having a how but can you talk yeah. a little bit about that well first I, I i do like having money i got a little place down in the ozarks got a little boat down there so i enjoy those things in life um so you know some people i like to act like you know that's not important to them and being able to pay uh tuition those things are all very important to me but sure. i don't think that i don't think that the number of hours an entrepreneur has to work, uh, I don't think you can do it for 20 years if if the only thing you really love is making money. I, I think it'd be challenging. Sure. I love what I do. One of my philosophies in business is what I call build up, build under. I learned this from a friend of mine named uh, Tom Seinhorst. And um, what I do is I build something. And then once I figure out how to do it, whether it's websites or mobile apps or whatever, uh, you know, writing a political poll, then I hire somebody else to, to do it. And usually they improve upon it. But but I build it up, then I build under, build up and build under. And, and I love doing these things. I get up every day excited about conquering the world, conquering whatever mountain I'm, I'm climbing that week or that month or that year. And, and, and I make, I make money doing it. I don't make as much as if I, you know, if I had gone into, you know, I have a finance degree. If I had gone to uh, New York or Chicago and worked the border trade or something like that, I, I almost certainly would make, I'd make, I don't know if I'd make more money, but I'd make really good money. But, you know, what a terrible job for yeah. me because that, that would not express who I am. So building and being creative and doing things I love, uh, starting new companies, uh, figuring out how to do things new, you know, whatever the puzzle is, that's, that's what I love and that's what drives me to get out of bed each day. And so as you think through your own passion, what, do, you, do, you, do you often encourage other entrepreneurs or people that are thinking about starting a business to, to that end? I mean, what, what does that discussion look like with somebody – because ideally, again, I, ho I hope that somebody who's listening to this is thinking about starting something. What would you encourage them to do in their journey? I, I tell on, budding entrepreneurs the same thing I told my kids growing up. Figure out what you love to do so much that you would do it for free. And then work every day to figure out how to get paid to do that. So... If you do it for free and you can get paid to do it, that's a that's a pretty good intersection for life. Sure. And so, you know, some people are passionate about you know, some people are just passionate about entrepreneurship. It doesn't necessarily matter what the subject is, and that's fine. You know, in some yeah. ways, that's sort of me. Uh, but some people are, you know, 
passionate about their hobby and they turn their hobby into a, a multi-million dollar business. Um, and, and some people are uh, passionate about service. And so they end up, you know, starting something that's service or, and then they may not make millions, but they make enough to have a good living for them or their family. And uh, they're happy doing what they're doing. So, you know, the, the number one thing to me is figure out what you love to do and get paid to do it. That's excellent advice. And so how do your, how do your kids take that? When you, when you tell them, you encourage them to that end, how has that, how has that resulted? And I don't know the age of your kids, so I, yeah. I don't know where they are so, in the process. But It's a great question because they have followed that advice. I have two in college and two out of college. Uh, the, the first one is a voice actor, and uh, that's what he does for himself. And he, I actually am his largest client because he does a lot of work in our virtual reality curriculum. That's excellent. And he, you know, he, he does these great Einstein voices. He, does, he can do almost any voice. He was a theater major, and he loves to do that kind that's of stuff, so cool. and he works for himself. I love it. My number two is, is very involved in ministry. And so uh, she doesn't make a lot of money but she's passionate about being involved in a ministry with uh, college athletes. She loves it. It drives her to get out of bed. Um, and, and, and that's what she gets paid to do. And she's, she's just so happy doing that. So that's great. Uh, my, my third one intends to be a, a school teacher. And so we'll see where that goes, but that's something that she thinks that she would love doing. Yeah. Well, that's, that's terrific. And before we, before we end this interview, I'm very thankful for you spending some time. I know you're very busy. Tell me a little bit, because STEM is kind of the science, technology, engineering, and math is kind of my bread and butter as a legislator. I love new technologies. Can you just, for, this is just completely selfish. I don't even know if my, my reader, my listeners will even be interested in this part, but tell me about how the, the virtual reality stuff is going for victory, virtual reality, and, and how that came about. Yeah. Well, I have two virtual reality companies, and I'd like to just take a little short time to tell you about both because I think they're both interesting. Uh, the first one is Victory VR, and what we, what we know from studies is that students who learn in virtual reality have a 60% greater retention, which, is, um, which they figured out through testing, right? So sure. uh, we decided to take the entire next-gen national science standards from grades 5 through 12 and to hire the nation's runner-up teacher of the year and a national curriculum specialist and to put the whole team together and to create science. And we take kids on, you know, they get to learn about photosynthesis in the redwood forest and they stand and they look around, they can look at the tallest living organisms in life or they can learn about engineering design standing on the Great Wall of China and learn about how, how uh, Genghis Khan would come down through China and that, that was the problem that had to be solved. And so, you know, the constraints were where do they get all the rock to build this? Where do they get all the labor? So we teach engineering design. And we have shot almost 48 virtual field trips, almost 48 science teacher experiments. And then uh, we have a lot of other, uh, we let kids fly uh, a spaceship and go visit black holes and that type of thing. And in virtual reality, it's so immersive, it's so convincing that it, kids are captivated they when, when we put our devices in schools kids are fighting to be first in line yeah. to learn science when has that ever happened before okay. so that's that's a wonderful thing and so we we love 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 
working in this space. And uh, one of our first schools was in St. Louis, Hawthorne School for Girls. And so, you know, they're they're working through this with us, and, and, and we love being a part of it. So that's the science curriculum company. Uh, and, and we're international. We have partners in uh, both India and China distributing that. The other company is Chalk Bites VR. And Chalk Bites is, is a training. So we have a couple of Fortune 500 companies. They need to have their people trained in a way that's more immersive, that's more real. And so we built that out in VR. And so we're about ready to launch. And this is, this is news we haven't released to the media yet. But in Q1 of next year, we will be launching our first um, virtual reality uh, building, store, storefront. And it'll, it's training by day, gaming by night. Wow. So we did a field trip to Beijing to uh, see the most advanced virtual reality gaming facility in the world. And it's really cool. But we want to do training by day for hospital workers, for police, uh, for many others, and then by night, let millennials or whoever else come in and participate in virtual reality gaming. And so hopefully we can hit our daily number. We can break even, make a little bit of money, yeah. and um, yeah. and really change the way uh, the world trains and games. So where where will you where will be the first location for that? Our beta site will be in downtown Davenport, Iowa, okay. which is my hometown. Sure. And so that way I can go in, uh, we can iterate day by day, figuring out the model. And then if we can make it work in a mid-sized market like the Quad Cities, then yeah. we ought to be able to transport it to St. Louis and Madison and Chicago and elsewhere. Sure. And, and then, you know, uh, scale it, not just across the United States, but around the world. That's that's uh, really exciting. I hope I get to see that in the very near future. And um, Steve, thank you so well, much for the time. And I'm sorry, go ahead and you can finish up there. I was going to say when you uh, when you come to Davenport, we can do uh, part two of this interview, and we can do it at the facility when we open it in Q1. Oh man, that would be excellent. We probably should just plan that. That'd be that'd be great. I'd love it. Let's schedule it. Well, great. Steve, thanks again for the time. And really quick before you get off, how can people reach you if they have any questions or if they want to talk to you or interact with you? And um, I know you've been very accessible to me, and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, they can email me, uh, Steve, at victoryvr.biz, Steve at victoryvr.biz. And uh, I'm usually pretty good at uh, getting back to people as long as they're not crazy. <laughs> great. Well, Steve, again, thanks for the time. This has been really a pleasure to get to talk with you, and I, I hope we get to see each other soon. All right. Thanks, Travis. Great. Thanks for listening to the Risk Big Podcast, Stories of Starts with Travis Fitzwater. Find episodes online with show notes at www.riskbigpodcast.com slash episodes. Also, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter by following at Risk Big Podcast.